Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. On today's podcast, we have three really interesting cases that we're going to talk about. They deal with discrimination across a broad range of settings in schools, in choirs, in healthcare. But the common thread that runs through all of them is discrimination that is based on religious convictions and religious carve-outs. We are going to start by talking about the Dimkovich case that we've talked about before involving a gay choir director and a decision from an en banc Seventh Circuit dismissing his hostile work environment claim. Next up, we have two cases that we're going to look at together involving the issue that we've seen popping up more and more nowadays involving the right some are claiming to deliberately misgender people based on religious convictions. The final case that we'll talk about is a federal district court in Maryland that rules on a case from a transgender man who was turned away from a Catholic hospital when he sought a medically necessary hysterectomy. With us, as always, is New York Law School professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest legal developments here and abroad. But before I introduce Art, LGBT Law Notes is available on our website. I'm going to link to it at the bottom of this description for the podcast so that you can find it and take a look at it. Law Notes is so comprehensive. We have civil litigation notes, criminal legal issues that are explored, uh, state policy issues, federal issues, um, and then of course the case summaries that we do and, and select only three of them for this particular podcast. These are all written by art. They're written by volunteer attorneys and students who work with art. Uh, to, to really read these, condense the issues, and give it to us in an accessible way that's entertaining and easily digestible. So if you like LGBT Law Notes and if you like this podcast, please consider giving to Legal, the LGBT Bar Association of New York. Uh, we are a nonprofit organization. Art has been writing LGBT Law Notes since the very beginning of our organization some 43 years ago. Uh, we're very proud of it and we thank you for your support. I'll also include that link to donate in the description about this podcast so that it's easy to find and you can click on it without problems. So now let's talk to Art. Hi Art, it's so good to see you. We've already been chatting for uh, folks who are joining us on the podcast. We always chat and catch up beforehand. Art just told me he's retiring. Well, I'm retiring from the full-time faculty at the right. end of the fall semester because that was my goal. When I hit age 70, I'm going to retire from the full-time faculty, yes. but I'm going to continue to teach my sexuality course on an adjunct basis. That's amazing. And you'll continue to write law notes? This is where I nail yes. you down and make sure you're and done. And I'll continue to do the podcast <laughs> as long as I'm able. <laughs> I love it. Um, and so you'll have more time to go to the opera, which is yes. what I wanted to talk to you. You're getting ready to go uh, do like your Glimmer Glass Opera. This is my Glimmer Glass week. They built an outdoor stage and we'll be sitting on the lawn on folding chairs okay. and hope it doesn't rain. But they said, bring a poncho and an umbrella. And because uh, they can't cancel these concerts, they can't afford to pay refunds to, to, to all the ticket holders. So uh, and they've condensed the operas. They're 90 minutes with no intermission, leaving out you know, so, subsidiary plot lines and stuff. Just the, just the highlights, basically. Good. All right. Well, let's launch right into it because um, for folks who don't read uh, Law Notes, first of all, read Law Notes. Second, this is just packed with uh, really interesting cases, a lot of them from federal uh, courts of appeal. Um, in a split ruling, the Seventh Circuit, sitting as an en banc court, dismissed a hostile work environment lawsuit by a gay former music director of a Chicago church, finding that it was barred by a religious ministerial exemption to Title VII's employment protection. 
Um, so the facts here are clearly, this is the Demkovich case. Uh, we've talked about the facts here. Otherwise, they definitely would establish you know, a pretty clear hostile work environment claim. And uh, Mr. Demkovich was fired uh, because he was married to his husband. This, we've got a lot to talk about um, in, in addition to the fact that this widens a circuit split um, in the area. So Art, tell us about this important ruling and uh, the facts of the Demkovich case. Okay, so uh, we talked about this before because there was a panel ruling in favor of Mr. Demkovich uh, in terms of the, uh, the motion to dismiss. Uh, so this is yet another ministerial exemption case. And we know that the Supreme Court has little by little been expanding the ministerial exemption. Uh, they first recognized it in uh, the Hosanna Tabor Evangelical Lutheran Church and School case in 2012, then in Our Lady of Guadalupe School versus Morrissey Baru in 2020, they expanded the scope of people who are affected by it. Uh, and the, the original view had been the ministerial exemption was literally for ministers, for people who were ordained ministers. If you go back to its birth in the lower courts, uh, the cases involved ordained ministers. Uh, and uh, it was a little bit of a stretch in Hosanna Tabor because it was a, uh, a teacher of secular subjects, not of religion but she had a calling in the church. And so although she wasn't technically a priest or a minister, uh, she was deemed a ministerial employee because she had some religious functions and because she had a calling, she was called by the congregation and she got into a dispute with them uh, that led to an Americans with Disabilities Act claim. And the Supreme Court held that they were immune under the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, from a, a wrongful discharge suit. Uh, and then in Our Lady of Guadalupe School, it was actually a combination of two cases uh, arising in uh, parochial schools, uh, Catholic schools, where teachers of non-religious subjects basically uh, had various uh, discrimination law claims and were discharged and were claiming discriminatory discharge under various employment statutes. And these were not they didn't have a calling, they weren't ordained, but the Supreme Court widened the ministerial exemption to say basically any employee of a religious organization whose function includes the religious functions of the organization would be covered by the ministerial exemption. And so you have teachers in parochial schools, uh, if they're leading the class in prayer, if they're overseeing students leading a class in prayer, if they're praying with their students, if they're supposed to interweave Catholic ethical teachings into their teachings, et cetera, if they have any role in the institutional mission and Justice Alito for the court said, basically, I mean, you send your kids to parochial school because you want them to be raised in a Catholic environment with a Catholic education. And you're depending on teachers to inculcate Catholic doctrine. So even though they're not technically ministers, they're in the ministerial exemption. Well, that's in terms of defining who's covered. But then the question is, to what does the exemption apply? And we know from the cases the Supreme Court has decided, it certainly applies to discharge decisions. It probably also e easily applies to hiring decisions because the court's, the court's justification was the state has no business interfering with decisions by religious organizations about who they're going to employ as a minister. So who they're going to employ means uh, who they hire, who they fire, who they assign, what work they assign to them, et cetera. That's pretty clear. Uh, should it also apply to what they pay them? Like, should the Fair Labor Standards Act apply or should there be an exemption? I think there may actually even be an exemption uh, from the Fair Labor Standards Act. But what about the Occupational Safety and Health Act? Should religious organizations be totally exempt from having to comply with safety and health regulations? I mean, there are all kinds of questions about how broad uh, the free exercise of religion is when we come to employment law. But in this case, the Demkovich case, we have a situation, uh, according to uh, the allegations of the amended complaint, in which uh, the Reverend Dada, who is, who is the, uh, the chief uh, religious officer of this uh, St. Andrew the Apostle Parish Church in Calumet City, Our, which is a it, suburb. 
What what is a Reverend Dada? Is that a name or is that a formal title? That's his name. Okay, all right. Reverend I know, Dada. Like, That's Dada how he's referred to throughout the pigeons. <laughs> it's not a, Tata isn't a title of the Catholic Church, as far as I know. So Tata, Reverend Dada and his staff repeatedly used hate speech, racial slurs, sexist, homophobic comments, etc. Uh, they were pretty merciless in the way they treated Demkovich. Demkovich had been hired uh, to be the music director of the church uh, uh, in 2012. And uh, Reverend Dada was really mean to him. I mean, nasty to judge by his complaints, but he stuck it out because he loved working with the choir. He loved playing the organ for the services. He loved coordinating the music with the services. He liked, he loved his job and he was a gay man and they knew he was a gay man, but that didn't matter. The church in most places, they'll employ gay people because they know if they didn't employ gay people, they would have trouble finding people. I mean, if you want to hire a competent organist and choir director and you exclude all gay people, you're cutting yourself off from a lot of talent. Good luck. <laughs> so he was he was warned. He was given an ultimatum because uh, he had let Reverend Dada know that he was planning to marry his boyfriend after the Supreme Court decided Obergefell and it became legal. Uh, and Dada said, all right, if you do that, we have to fire you. And he went ahead and he did it and they fired him and he sued them under Title VII. Uh, and his first complaint, he sued them for wrongful discharge and for a hostile environment. And they immediately said, uh, you know, ministerial exemption, you're clearly a minister, you can't sue us for the discharge. So he filed an amended complaint and the amended complaint said, well, I'm not suing you for the discharge, I'm suing you for the hostile environment to which you subjected me. All right. And I'm suing under both Title VII and the Americans with Disabilities Act because he was also, uh, Demovich has various physical conditions that include, among other things, he can't control his weight very easily. So he's rather large. Uh, so Dada was really nasty to him about his weight, constantly harassing him about that. So he has two hostile environment claims. He files suit and the district court dismissed the Title VII environment claim, but uh, because he said, he said, you know, the uh, the ministerial exemption, Title VII, not going to go near that, but on the ADA claim, refused to dismiss. Uh, said it's not clear that the minute under the ministerial exception, you can't be sued for uh, harassing someone because of a disability. I don't see where religion comes into that. Uh, so uh, the uh, Archdiocese of Chicago appeals. And they asked the Seventh Circuit to consider both issues, Title VII and ADA, because they say we should just be exempt from suit. We shouldn't have even had to file a motion to dismiss. The court should have just sua sponte dismissed. So uh, we should be allowed to be as mean as possible to anybody we want, you know. Yeah, because we're the church. We're exempt. You know, we can, within our precincts, we are the law. Stay out. Unless we have a fire, you know, we'll let the fire department in. <laughs> But don't ask us to pay property taxes to pay for the fire department. So at any rate, you know, that this, despite the establishment clause, this country heavily subsidizes churches. You know, we you all don't that. say. But, <laughs> but, so they got a two, a three judge panel of which uh, two of them were liberal Obama appointees. And uh, one of them was a conservative uh, Republican appointee. And the uh, three-judge panel, divided two to one, revived his hostile environment claim under Title VII and affirmed that he had a hostile environment claim under the ADA. And of course, the archdiocese filed the petition for on-bank review, which was granted. And uh, with on-bank review, you get the entire circuit. The Seventh Circuit is pretty big, but it's not big enough that they can't sit together. Pretty so conservative. Like the Ninth Circuit, you know, the yeah. Ninth Circuit, they do eleven judge on banks because they have close to thirty judges. But in the uh, break up the Ninth Circuit is a battle cry, <laughs> and but, pack it with more judges. Let's yes. keep packing it. <laughs> but uh, but the uh, the Seventh Circuit is a pretty Republican circuit, which oh, yeah. which it's it's sort of surprising that they did such a great job on marriage equality and on uh, sexual orientation covered under Title Seven. Because there were a bunch of libertarian Republican judges on the Seventh Circuit that gave it a sort of progressive tinge on social issues. So uh, 
you never know what's going to happen with an on bank. But Trump has appointed a lot of judges to the Seventh Circuit, and uh, there were Democratic judges who retired. And uh, so we got a reversal. Uh, and the on bank circuit takes the position that basically, with respect to ministerial employees, a church is exempt from complying with employment discrimination law when it comes to ministerial employees. It, it is not limited. The, the panel said, okay, you can't interfere with hiring and firing decisions. Okay, he can't sue for wrongful discharge because he hired his, fired, he married his husband. But uh, the, the panel said, we don't see where a hostile environment claim has anything to do with religion. Uh, it has anything to do with managing your staff. I mean, sexually harassing people, harassing them because of disability, harassing them because they're gay. We don't see that there's any religious uh, free exercise to protect there. That's sort of ultra virus when it comes to employment. But the uh, beyond bank and the, the decision by Judge Michael Brennan, a Trump uh, appointee, uh, says uh, basically church can do what it wants to its employees. Uh, they, they might be liable to being sued in tort if they committed a tort like intentional infliction of emotional distress uh, or, uh, you know, assault or something like that. You know, uh, churches have been sued uh, about, you know, sexually harassing kids and sexually assaulting kids and stuff. You can, you can subject them to the criminal law. You can subject them to tort liability. Uh, churches have been sued for breach of contract. Fine. They're not exempt from having to comply with their contracts, but as far as a statutory employment discrimination claim, forget it. From the, from the hiring decision to the firing decision and everything in between, uh, they're exempt. That's the position of the majority of the Seventh Circuit on bank. That's pretty extreme. And that does create a split with some other circuits. The Ninth Circuit has said you can bring a hostile environment claim if you're a ministerial employee. Uh, it's, it's not only because you, know, you think ministerial employee, you think of churches. Well, then you also have to think about religious schools. You have to think about religious hospitals. You have to think about uh, religious adoption agencies, foster care agencies. You have a wide range of religious employers in this country. And the question of who's a ministerial employee, it gets more and more difficult as you move away from the core church. Right. But religious schools, you know, after the, uh, the Guadalupe decision from 2020, just about every teacher in a religious school. And uh, as uh, Judge Hamilton, who wrote the dissent, uh, Judge Hamilton, who was appointed by uh, President Obama, wrote the panel decision for the two to one panel majority. And he writes the dissent here. And he points out, all you, all you have to do is a little research online to discover that the uh, right-wing religious litigation groups have really been going to town on advising religious organizations about how to make as many people ministerial employees as possible in order to insulate themselves from employment discrimination law. Uh, they say, make people have to execute statements of faith when you hire them. Uh, modify your job descriptions to make sure that there is some religious function in their job description. Do everything you can to make sure that they can be called a ministerial employee under the broad uh, statements of the court in Guadalupe. And now we had this on-bank decision with even, with even broader language. Uh, so, uh, and, and a lot of gay people work for these organizations, a lot of people with disabilities, a lot of people, you know, women who are treated unequally, uh, people of color. Uh, one of the things that is alleged in the uh, amended complaint in the Demkovich case is the Reverend Dada and his staff repeatedly use racial slurs. Well, now they can't be sued for it under Title VII, at least in the Seventh Circuit, which is I mean, three major Midwestern states. My, my blood is just boiling as I listen to um, you talk about all the various ways that um, that all the implications of a ruling like this and how broad it is. And I mean, we're gonna to continue to talk about Catholic hospitals in one of the segments that we have today. Everybody who you know, listens to this podcast, follows the Supreme Court knows that Catholic uh, agency was at, at issue in the Supreme Court case around 
uh, adoption Fulton. Uh, issues yes. in Fulton v. Philly. Um, so it's it's broad and 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 it's troubling. Well, let's take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about, um, well, at least one case where we've got a, a positive outcome. So if you're if you try to relax just a little bit your nerves um, with some good news uh, and we'll be right back. All right, we are back. We've talked about um, the high profile case where a teacher asserted um, that it was their constitutional right to deliberately refuse to recognize the gender identity of his trans students and how he won an early victory. Today, we're going to talk about two cases, one from a federal court in Indiana involving a choir teacher's religious discrimination claim for being discharged for misgendering students, and another from a state appellate court in California involving a misgendering provision in a patient's bill of rights. Art, tell us about these two cases and let's start in Indiana. First, to clarify on that that earlier case, uh, we actually ended up losing, at least in uh, preliminarily losing in right. Merweather against Hartop. Uh, that was the uh, the professor at a state college in Indiana who uh, was misgendering his students, and uh, he was disciplined for it by the school, rather mildly disciplined. He was sort of admonished in writing in his personnel file. And he goes to court and he says, well, I've got a First Amendment right to say anything I want in the classroom, uh, basically, uh, certainly on, sub, on matters of sub public interest. And I think, uh, you know, the whole issue of misgendering and gender identification and transgender and everything, that's hot stuff in the news. That's a matter of public interest. And uh, the Sixth Circuit uh, ended up writing a two to one decision in his favor because the district court had dismissed the case. This court said, oh, you know, the, the, the pronouns and the names you use in the classroom are not political speech covered by the First Amendment. The Sixth Circuit disagreed. They turned it around, uh, a unanimous panel. And uh, just, you know, to update, because this is also in the August issue of One Oats, on July 8th, the Sixth Circuit denied on bank review in that case. So uh, that stands as a circuit court precedent that uh, a, uh, a refusal to comply with the school's rules against misgendering transgender students in the classroom is you know, a First Amendment protected speech, at least in the Sixth Circuit. Uh, but here we have a case that arose in a uh, district court in the Seventh Circuit. So it's not covered by Sixth Circuit precedent. This is a case of uh, Mr. John, and I'm not sure how he pronounces his last name, whether it's Klug or Kluge, K-L-U-G-E. John Kluge, uh, actually a music teacher and orchestra leader at Brownsburg High School. Uh, this is in uh, Indiana. And uh, the school responded to the phenomenon of transgender students by adopting a policy. They call it their name policies. And under the name policy, there's a central computer uh, that has all of the directory information about all the students. And if a student presents a letter from a parent accompanied by a letter from their healthcare provider indicating that they should be called under the following name because of their gender identity, that goes into the computer database and the uh, teachers are all instructed, that's the name you use. That's the pronouns you use. Uh, because part of our policy is to provide equality of opportunity, of educational opportunity to our transgender students, to be supportive of them. Because our job is to give them an education. Our job is to give everyone an education. And under Title IX, we can't discriminate. Okay, this was the position of the school district. Well, Mr. Kluge had a problem with that. He's an evangelical Christian. He belongs to an evangelical church where he's a leader in the church. Uh, he leads prayers, he chairs committees, stuff like that. Uh, and he said, no, 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 no. Uh, in, in his, he filed the document with the court about his religious beliefs. Uh, Mr. Kluge believes that God created mankind as either male or female, that this gender is fixed in each person from the moment of conception, and that it cannot be changed regardless of an individual's feelings or desires. And so under his beliefs, 
he would be committing a sin if he encouraged the students' gender dysphoria by calling them by a name inconsistent with their sex as identified at birth. So he said to the principal, I can't comply with this policy. If a transgender student, and this was all hypothetical at that point, because he hadn't had any transgender students as far as he knows, but he, if a transgender student shows up, I can't comply. Uh, and he was told, well, you have three options. Option one, comply with the policy. Option two, resign. Option three, be discharged. <laughs> and he said, well, look, under Title VII, under Title VII, I may not be discriminated against on the basis of my religion. And under Title VII, you are required to reasonably accommodate my religion. So I'm gonna propose an accommodation. He said, let me call all students by their last name and avoid using pronouns. So they said, okay, we'll give it a try. So this was over the summer uh, and in the fall, he shows up as a transgender student in the orchestra. And he tries, he tries just to use last names. But the problem is he slips a lot. He's used to calling students Mr. or Ms. He's used to calling students by their first names. So he, he slips occasionally and uh, he misgenders the student. It's, it's, it's carelessness, it's, you know, it's, and uh, actually uh, when he ended up in court, they cited the Sixth Circuit decision. And in the Sixth Circuit decision, the professor had said that I can't, you know, teach with just using last names and avoiding pronouns. It just gets in the way of the free flow of conversation in class. You know, it becomes a big issue. It's impossible. And uh, so by the end of the fall term, the administration at the school had received enough complaints that they said, this isn't working. And they got back in touch with Kluge. They said, we expect you henceforth to call people by the name in the database. If you don't do it, you'll be fired at the end of the semester or you can resign, you know, one or the other. And he said, well, can I give you a conditional letter of resignation? So, you know, maybe we can figure something out. But, and so they said, okay, give us a conditional letter of resignation. That's his recollection. So he gives them a condition or letter of resignation, but it didn't state any condition in it. And at the end of the semester, they accepted it, which he said was a constructive discharge. And he filed suit under Title VII he said he's being discriminated against. He also claimed it was a violation of his First Amendment rights, a free exercise of religion. Uh, and uh, a year, over a year ago, uh, Judge Magnus Jane Magnus Stinson is the judge here, district court, who was appointed by President Obama. Uh, judge Magnus Stinson dismissed his First Amendment claim. She said, uh, the name policy is uh, facially neutral. It doesn't target religion. It's generally applicable to everyone at the school. So you don't have a right not to comply with it, you know, under employment division versus Smith. So first amendment claim out the door. Uh, but, you know, you might have a title seven claim. Uh, there is a requirement of accommodation. So we should do some discovery here, find out what's going on. Uh, and then we'll end up with motions for summary judgment. So motions for summary judgment after discovery, she decided the school has a compelling interest here, compelling interest. Uh, and uh, the accommodation he suggested wasn't working. The accommodation he was suggested was getting in the way of the school achieving its policy of providing a welcoming environment to transgender students. There was there were transgender students who said, I'm afraid to go to orchestra class. I, you know, I'm shaking in my boots to go to orchestra class. I, I feel totally uncomfortable. I feel like I can't go up and talk to the teacher, you know. Uh, and so they uh, judge Judge Magnus Stinson rejected the school's defense and granted summary judgment against the teacher. Uh, they accepted the school's defense. You know, and, and they said it's, it's not a reasonable accommodation. You don't have a Title VII claim, Mr. Kluge. Uh, Mr. Kluge is going to appeal. He's uh, being uh, represented by Liberty Council or Alliance Defending. You know, one of them will step in. 
I would imagine, uh, given the uh, the interest in this case, if you, you look at the amicus briefs on file in this case, it's clear that there's an interest in this case. Uh, the other case involving misgendering, misgendering is emerging as a significant issue in transgender law, especially employment law, but also public accommodations law. So it seems that in 2017, California passed a statute, the LGBT Long-Term Care Facility Residence Bill of Rights. And among other things, it says misgendering a transgender resident in a long-term care facility if it is done repeatedly and knowingly is a crime. It's a misdemeanor. And the person who does it can be prosecuted. I love now, California. Now we're not going to throw them in the clink for life. You know, it's not in the life. It's, can we it's go get misdemeanor. Mr. Cuge? <laughs> yeah, yeah, get him into California and you put him to work at a long-term care. And I'm facility. not going to pronounce his name right. I'll pronounce it however I want. You're sitting Ooh. in a yeah. In a school, you're allowed to, it's your First Amendment right to call him whatever you want. I'm going to call him Mr. Kluge and see what happens. Okay, so, so, uh, and they also they said the transgender people, they said it doesn't violate the law to honor the request of a transgender person with respect to housing, because in these long-term care facilities, they tend to have two or more patients in a room, and a transgender person might have preferences as to the gender or the gender identity of the people they're housed with. Uh, and so the, uh, the Bill of Rights says that it does not violate the law to accommodate them. Okay, so there's this organization. And I have a feeling this organization was formed for the purpose of filing this lawsuit because they call themselves taking offense. Oh my and God. They allege that they are an unincorporated association which includes at least one California citizen and taxpayer. And on that basis, they claim to have standing to challenge the constitutionality of uh, these provisions, the housing provision and the misgendering provision. They say the misgendering provision violates the First Amendment rights of the staff at the long-term care facilities because uh, misgendering somebody involves the use of speech and it's speech that's protected by the First Amendment, which we know Judge Magnus Stinson says it isn't when a school teacher does it. She totally rejected that idea. She said, uh, what you call students in the classroom is not political speech, it's employee speech. It's part of your job as a teacher to call on students. All right, so you're speaking for the school district, not for yourself when you call on students. Uh, so she totally rejected how the Sixth Circuit approached that. Uh, and uh, in this case, however, the court agreed that the misgendering provision is a content-based regulation of speech by the state in a criminal statute. And so they said, do they have a compelling justification for it? And they said, yes, they do have a compelling justification for it. But since it's a content-based regulation of speech, it's subject to strict scrutiny, which means you have to have more than a compelling justification. You have to have a narrowly tailored approach. You can't overdo it. And we think making it a crime, an individual crime for a member of the staff to misgender someone more than once knowingly as a misdemeanor, we think that is awfully heavy handed. We think the approach is the unruh law, which is the, uh, the public accommodation, the public accommodations is covered by the unruh statute in California. It covers gender identity. It's already a violation of the Unruh Act, arguably, to misgender residents in a long-term care facility, which is a public accommodation, which is covered by the law. So file a complaint. You know, the person who's misgendered, file a complaint against long-term care facility. And, you know, it'll go through the administrative process and they'll tell them you have to instruct your staff not to do this and maybe you know, uh, will give some damages to people for emotional distress, for being misgendered, et cetera. And it'll all be worked out in the civil sphere. They said uh, it, it flunks strict scrutiny on the narrow tailoring aspect of it. Also, there was some vagueness about how it was applied. And it, it was overbroad in the sense that you didn't have to even prove that the transgender resident heard being misgendered. You know, so they so they said, and so the compelling interest, you know, the compelling interest is in protecting people 
from the emotional distress and uh, the feeling of being singled out and not respected, et cetera. That's what we're trying to protect them from. And we don't think you need this criminal statute so broadly construable to apply. And so they struck that down as violating the First Amendment. But they rejected the argument on the housing. They said, this doesn't give transgender people any special rights. The claim of taking offense is you're giving a special right by giving transgender people a veto over who you room them with and cisgender people don't have a veto. <laughs> and of course, said, well, one thing is that cisgender people don't need a veto. And uh, basically uh, it's transgender people who do. They are similarly situated in some respects, but uh, the way we read the language, all we're saying is in the uh, Bill of Rights that it doesn't violate the law for a long-term care facility to accommodate them. That's all we're saying. And uh, when it comes to this housing thing, we just don't see this as uh, a violation of equal protection. There's no First Amendment issue here, it's just equal protection. And we think uh, there's a reasonable basis for the state to say you should be accommodating, you know, and we're not going to we're going to say the transgender people you can accommodate without violating the law. So it's a mixed decision. Uh, and they they point out, they say, you know, the legislature can go back and they can fix it. They can just say it's not a misdemeanor. All right. Well, let's uh, uh, take a, a short break. These were fascinating cases and we ended up covering three, I would say. Uh, with a pre-weather look. Um, so uh, let's go ahead and take a short break. We have one more case to talk about, also involving uh, transgender discrimination um, by a Catholic institution. All right, we're back. So we have a last case about equal access to healthcare for transgender patients. We are looking at a good decision from a federal court in Maryland in Hammonds v. University of Maryland Medical System. Uh, the plaintiff, Jesse Hammonds, is a transgender man, was denied medically necessary hysterectomy by a Catholic hospital, which claims it will not perform operations to remove healthy organs or that which would sterilize an individual without medical necessity. And of course, uh, you know, the procedure was uh, medically necessary for Hammond's gender dysphoria. Um, but they, as Law Notes notes, uh, they don't take much uh, account of that argument. Art, talk to us about this important case. Okay, the first thing to understand is this is a Catholic hospital that's not a Catholic hospital but it is a Catholic hospital. And the explanation is St. Joseph Medical Center was going bankrupt. They, they were desperate straits. They were in danger of closing and they were an important institution in the community. They were serving a lot of people. Uh, so uh, the archdiocese decided, let's see if we can interest the University of Maryland in acquiring this hospital. And the University of Maryland was very happy to do so. University of Maryland uh, Medical Systems was very happy to acquire St. Joseph. The problem is the archdiocese put strings on it. They said the Vatican and the archdiocese will not approve the sale of a Catholic hospital unless the contract of sale specifies that it will continue to be operated as a Catholic hospital in compliance with Catholic doctrine. And it seems that the Catholic bishops of the United States have promulgated Catholic doctrine for the running of Catholic hospitals. And that includes the, uh, the provision you read uh, in the lead in here that uh, a Catholic hospital will not remove a healthy organ unless it's medically necessary to do so. Uh, they will not uh, engage in a procedure that will result in sterilization unless it's medically necessary to do so uh, for a serious medical condition. So, but he scheduled it and then just a little of seven to 10 days before the operation was to take place, the vice president, the chief medical officer of the hospital communicates back, we've canceled the operation for Mr. Hammonds because Ms. Jesse Hammonds is a transgender man because it involves sterilizing someone and removing a healthy organ. And it's not medically necessary. And uh, the, the surgeon said, oh, it's medically necessary to cure his gender dysphoria. The way we cure gender dysphoria is by transitioning. 
And part of the transitioning, if you're going from female to male, is a hysterectomy. That's basically a major part of the sex reassignment surgery, the gender affirmation surgery, very different labels that are put on at different times. Uh, but this is medically necessary. And they say, no, it isn't. You know, so they filed suit under the Constitution. This is the University of Maryland. It's a public institution. They're bound by the Equal Protection Clause. They're bound by the First Amendment, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, under the Affordable Care Act, Section 1557, which is the non-discrimination provision, uh, they're discriminating against him because he's transgender. All right, so uh, the hospital is moving to dismiss the case. And they have this internally contradictory argument on the constitutional claim. They say, first of all, we're a Catholic hospital, so we have a free exercise of religion, blah, 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 blah. But on the other hand, we're owned by the University of Minnesota, so we've got a sovereign immunity claim as well. But how can a religious hospital have a sovereign immunity claim? And how can a state university hospital have a free exercise of religion claim? Wouldn't that violate the establishment? Well, you know, this is getting, and Judge Chasnell says, well, you know, I think my way, I'm going to cut through the Gordian knot here. I'm going to say sovereign immunity because I'm going to say, look, the hospital is wholly owned by the university. The university is an arm of the state government. The university's board of trustees are appointed by the governor. Okay. The university is a public institution. The state of Maryland has not waived sovereign immunity on behalf of the state university system. You cannot sue them on these constitutional claims in federal court. I wash my hands of it. If you're going to sue them, uh, you got to sue them in state court. But the 11th Amendment precludes me from exercising jurisdiction over the constitutional claims. But she turns around and says, Hold on, Art, I have to stop you. Did you notice that you said that the, the hospital was wholly owned? Yes. But I didn't, I meant W-H-O-L-L. Right. I didn't know you need H-O-L-L. It just made me laugh in this context because that's the whole question. Yeah, I guess, you know, it didn't strike me when I read it in the judge's decision, wholly owned because of the right. way she uh, so Judge Chasano, who, by the way, was appointed by Bill Clinton, she's a senior district judge now, she says, turning to uh, Section 5057 of the ACA, you know what? This hospital gets federal money. This hospital is covered by the Affordable Care Act. And contrary to the hospital's arguments, since the Bostock decision, it has been clear that Section 1557 bans gender identity discrimination because it incorporates by reference Title IX of the Education Amendments Act. Uh, when Congress wrote the uh, anti-discrimination provision in Section 1557, instead of listing the prohibited grounds of discrimination, they said discriminated based on the grounds of the following statutes, and they listed Title IX. And it's, it's been pretty clear, several courts have held now that Title IX covers gender identity discrimination. The Obama administration has said so. Uh, they withdrew a Trump administration regulation that said to the contrary. Uh, so, you know, she says it's pretty well established. And by the way, Maryland is in the Fourth Circuit. The Fourth Circuit is Grimm versus Gloucester. And uh, when push came to shove at the end of the day, the Fourth Circuit ruled that Title IX covers gender identity discrimination relatively recently. So she says, I'm bound by that ruling. So if Title IX covers it, then since Title IX is incorporated by reference in Section 1557, then Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act covers it. And so the hospital says, yeah, but we're not discriminating based on gender identity. And she says, yes, you are. You're denying him this operation because he's transgender and he's doing it for his gender transition. You do these operations for other reasons. You don't totally refuse to remove a healthy organ. There are other kinds of cases where you do. There are exceptions. You don't refuse to do an operation that will have the result of sterilizing people. You, you built an exception right in there for you know, a serious medical condition. You make exceptions. Therefore, you must make an exception here too. And they say, well, we can't because of our religion. Well, that's too bad. I have a feeling this one is going to be appealed. Uh, 
we'll see. Yeah. But, but this one, this one is likely to be appealed. It does stand a good chance in the Fourth Circuit because of the precedent that you just cited. It'll go right. to a panel right. and we've got the Grimm case. I mean, the, the main issue will be whether they were discriminating based on uh, transgender identity. And I think uh, Judge Chazano does a good job of explaining why they are discriminating. All right. So do you have an of note for us? Of course I have it of note for us. Uh, <laughs> it's another transgender case. Uh, okay. And it's is, another case we've discussed one? before. It's, it's, it's Adams. Okay. Uh, Adams versus School Board of St. John's County, Florida. Uh, and this is a peculiar sort of inside baseball type of 11th Circuit Michigan, to use a Yiddish expression, which is craziness. Uh, a three-judge panel ruled last summer that the St. John's County School Board violated the rights of uh, Drew Adams, a transgender boy, by not allowing him to use the boys' restrooms. And it was a wide-ranging three-judge panel decision. Uh, it, uh, it went under Title IX. It went under the Equal Protection Clause. Uh, it was really uh, a, a marvelous 11th Circuit victory, but it was a two-to-one uh, because the panel consisted of two women, Beverly Martin and Jill Pryor, both appointed by uh, Barack Obama, and William Pryor, no relation to Jill Pryor, who was appointed by George W. Bush. And his appointment back uh, in the Bush administration was one of those heavily negotiated compromises because he was such a right-wing conservative federal district judge at the time that putting him on the Fifth Circuit was extremely controversial. And the Democrats in the Senate were trying to filibuster him. And there was this big grand compromise where a bunch of people got confirmed. And so he ended up on the Fifth Circuit and now he's the chief judge. So, so people, panel will, people will remember him, probably our listeners from the panel decision in the Glenn v. Brumby case. Yeah, yeah, I think he dissented there. But uh, I think it was a good, I think he went along with the- uh, He went along, but yeah. in this case, in this case, it was two to one, he was dissenting. And he held up the mandate to go out, you know, after the, the court issues an opinion, then there's a mandate to send the case back to the district court with whatever instructions they give in the district court. So he held up the mandate. Well, evidently behind the scenes, he was lobbying for an on bank because Trump has appointed so many people to the 11th Circuit that in an on bank, it's likely this panel would have been reversed. Yeah. Uh, and he was he was either lobbying for an on bank or he was trying to use holding up the mandate as leverage to get the uh, the majority of the panel to reconsider their approach. Mm. And so what they ended up doing is they issued a new decision in place of the old decision. So they depublished the old decision. They issued a new decision on July 14th, and the new decision is the same bottom line Adams wins, but he wins on an equal protection ruling and they don't express any view as to whether Title IX was violated here. They affirm the district court, but only with respect to the equal protection ruling because there is an 11th Circuit precedent that you have heightened scrutiny under the equal protection clause. And the equal protection ruling is very narrow. It isn't saying that in general, you must allow transgender people to use the restroom uh, that coincides with their gender identity. It's because of the way the school district foolishly adopted a policy that they will respect the gender identity of students who transfer in, but not the gender identity of students who transition after they have become students in the school district. Hmm. Isn't this weird? So Drew Adams couldn't use the restroom because he trans he transitioned in high school and he'd been uh, since earlier, since grade school, he'd been in that school district. But as a transgender boy who transferred from a high school from another district and who had already transitioned, already got his name changed and already, you know, uh, if, if they're a high school student, they haven't had gender identity. Uh, transformation surgery because under the WPATH standards, you can't get that until you're 18. So very unlikely that a high school transfer student, unless, well, it'd be a weird circumstance uh, if they'd had genital surgery or anything like that. But uh, in this case, in this case, 
they're treating transgender people differently. And their articulated reasons, justifications for this restroom policy are not served by that because the issues are the same, whether someone transitioned before they registered in the school district or after. So yeah. it's irrational. Right. It doesn't even meet the rational basis test, much less heightened scrutiny. So that's the ground, which means that we don't have a Title IX ruling that's binding in the, in the, uh, in the 11th Circuit yet. And on the equal protection ruling, we have a very narrow fact-based ruling that's based on the weird definitions embraced by the St. John's County School District. Still a win for Drew. Right. But let's, weird. Let's get some uh, let's get some Biden judges up in the 11th Circuit, please. Uh, and it, we should note uh, of note, we uh, have two uh, judges who've been nominated by the Biden administration, both out lesbians, um, his first LGBTQ picks uh, at his rapid pace of nominating people, uh, one in a district court in Colorado, Charlotte Sweeney, and another uh, Beth Robinson, who's a Supreme Court justice up in Vermont, who's going to be uh, possibly confirmed to the Second Circuit. And she was, uh, I believe, the lead attorney in the uh, marriage equality case, the Baker case. Right. Which led to the enactment of the civil union law. And then she was a leader in the political campaign to persuade the Vermont legislature to go to marriage equality several years later. So, you it's know, a fantastic I'm pick. looking forward to having her on the second circuit. Me too. All right, Art. Well, have a good time. Thank you for making time for us before you rush off to Glimmerglass. Um, and I just want to say that, you know, it's always, I always learn so much from you and from these podcasts that we do together. The wide range of topics that we're covering here is just, I mean, there's so many important issues. And as I think about your upcoming retirement next time, I'm so, next year, um, I'm so glad you're going to continue to teach the law, gender, and sexuality course on which you wrote the case book because, um, you know, your students are just incredibly lucky. And this is such a great, great podcast. I always learn so much. And I think one of my retirement projects will probably be a new edition of the case book because there have been so many important uh, cases since the third edition came out. Yeah. We're going to need a new edition soon. Right. And there's all that money to be made, right? Well, uh, case books on sexuality and law, not so much. And there's a lot of competition. There are at least four case books now. Right. So, uh, We'll see, but uh, thank you. It's, it's always a pleasure doing it with you, Eric. And see you again next month. All right, bye Art. And thank you so much for listening. This episode and future episodes can be found online at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join us very soon for another episode. And thank you again for donating and supporting Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York.